You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a physician and editor-in-chief of Maine, Maine Home Design, Old Port, Ageless, and Moxie Magazines. Love, Maine Radio show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com, grownupgirl.com, where you can get personalized guidance and encouragement for growing a simple yet vibrant life through free advice, workshops, and mentoring programs with local experts. You deserve to shine. Go to grownupgirl.com now to learn about our available programs and classes designed just for you in the Portland area. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is the city's largest and is located in the heart of the Old Port, 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting the works of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space, including Brenda Sirioni, Daniel Corey, Jill Hoy, and Dave Allen. For complete show details, please visit our website at artcollectormaine.com. Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where everybody is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. Ari Solotov is a lawyer with the Portland firm Bernstein Shore, who has a background in nonprofits and the music industry. Before becoming an attorney, he was the youngest executive director of the Portland Symphony Orchestra. Thanks for coming in today. Delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, am I right in understanding that you came to Maine for the Portland Symphony Orchestra job? Yeah, that's exactly right. In 2006, uh, I interviewed and was recruited to come serve as the symphony's next executive director. And I was 26 at the time and had only been to Maine once before when I was here for a music camp in Weston, Vermont, when I was 10 years old at a camp called the Encore Coda, which still exists. And uh, came back here to Maine, interviewed and, and was offered the job, was delighted to come. So how, where are you originally from? I grew up in New York on Long Island uh, in Great Neck. And then when I was 15, I moved to California to Orange County. So from New York City to Surf City is what I usually say to folks. I feel I can identify with, uh, with both coasts in many respects. How does one at the age of 26 become the executive director of a major symphony orchestra? Well, I, um, I became interested in music when I was uh, about five. Both my parents are music teachers, so you could say that it was pretty much destined that I was going to have some uh, connection to the music industry. I started out on the piano and then uh, started playing the oboe, a, a symphonic music instrument, when I was 10. Went on uh, to to play in a number of different youth orchestras, which was really my um, my community was the the orchestra and symphonic setting. It's where I made all, you know so many of my great friends and and connections through through to today. Um, when I was in college at UC Berkeley, <clears throat> I uh, interned at the San Francisco Symphony in their public relations department. So I got started. Uh, clipping articles uh, about the San Francisco Symphony back before Google News existed. And so I had to clip out all the stories and paste them up and turn them into press packets that we then gave to the board and to the senior administration. But I had this amazing entry point into the other side of how music gets made, and that's really the business side and the administration side. So I found out that there was another way to be involved in music, and that was orchestra management. 
I went through an orchestra management fellowship program. There's only one in the country that exists that trains future executive directors of orchestras. I was 22 at the time and went to the Aspen Music Festival and the Pacific Symphony in Orange County, California, the Dayton Philharmonic in Dayton, Ohio, and then the Pittsburgh Symphony. So all in one year, I saw uh, you know major symphony orchestras to small orchestras to uh, summer music festivals. And then I landed my first job as executive director of the Pensacola Symphony Orchestra in Pensacola, Florida. It was 23 at the time. And the total budget for the orchestra was $752,000 a year. I'll never forget that. Because you could see every dollar come in and every dollar go out. <laughs> and it was amazing. Uh, we had a staff of two and a half. And so I really learned firsthand what it takes to put on uh, a string of and a series of concerts and to attend to an audience and to support musicians. And that really was a great start in the music industry, at least the classical music industry for me. So I grew from there. And uh, the way to move up in the symphonic music world is to move to a different city, because the larger the city, the larger the symphony orchestra. So you sort of have more complex uh, and interesting questions and challenges and a much larger artistic footprint uh, based on the size of the budget. So that's how I came to it. It was. Uh, uh, unique experience, but really um, came about because of that internship uh, at the San Francisco Symphony. Do you still play the oboe? No, I don't play the oboe anymore. I, um, I've picked up the piano again. That was my original instrument. Uh, oboe is not one of those instruments that you, uh, you know, kind of uh, have fun improving around on. Um, it's It's so technical that if I were to pick it up today, I would probably be so frustrated with my um, capability that it wouldn't be much fun so um, but I still stay connected to music in other ways and have since learned gone back to the piano I'm starting to get into uh, electronic music production which is really interesting to me and of course I go to as many concerts as I possibly can so and somewhere along the way you decided to go to law school yeah so back in um, well after Portland I went on to become the executive vice president of the Philadelphia Orchestra and went through an uh, amazingly interesting complex uh, bankruptcy process with that organization we we really um, to sort of make a long story short um, the orchestra kept operating and playing through a very complex legal process that kept the lights on and so I had the opportunity to work with an amazing group of attorneys who I think were absolutely central to keeping this $45 million, 120-year-old organization uh, alive and restructuring and using the law to really um, bring new life to the organization. And so I saw the power and the uh, incredible role that uh, a legal skill set can play in working with a creative industry and the music industry, and in that case, um, the orchestra. But I uh, had been thinking about going back to law school for some time because it's always been on my mind as I read through artist contracts and uh, rental agreements and media deals. You know, there's more to this story here, and I want to learn more about it. And I felt like the best way to dig into that, uh, those curiosities was to go in and get a law degree. And so I came back to Maine. We wanted to come back here. We love it here. We wanted to raise our family here. Uh, right after Philadelphia, we gave birth, or my wife gave birth to our son, uh, who's now six. And uh, we wanted to raise William here. 
and at the same time, this was a great place to go get a law degree at, at the University of Maine School of Law, knowing that this is a phenomenal legal community to, uh, to root yourself in. So went back and uh, got my law degree and then uh, joined Bernstein Shore, where I've been able to focus on uh, music and copyright law and intellectual property. And, uh, and that's been an amazing experience of putting together this uh, all of these threads, as we were saying, that uh, you know, pull your interests together and allow you to serve artists and creatives in a whole new way. So, I love what you're talking about um, because it's we often don't think about all the different pieces that enable music and the arts to exist and to thrive. Really, um, it's not as simple as guy gets a guitar, goes to a bar, guy or girl gets a guitar, goes to a bar, plays music, people pay, it's all good. I mean, there's a lot of layers, and especially now with um, the widespread distribution of music in so many different forms, trying to understand what all of that means um, and keep the artists functioning. That's, that's a much bigger deal than it ever once was, I think. It's uh, it's profoundly changing uh, as we speak. Um, literally, the role that a musician, a graphic designer, uh, a photographer, um, a writer can play, not only locally, but on a national and an international level because of the capabilities that exist from a technological perspective, it's extraordinary. And so uh, when you put that together, if you focus on the creativity, the fact that a, you know a musician is really um, you know their central and primary goal is to make great music or a photographer to take great photography the question is what's the infrastructure that needs to be behind them so that they can do what they do best but also earn a living while doing so and hopefully have an impact uh, on their audience on their community why would you go through that process if you weren't able to share your music or your art with uh, your community and with your audience. So the question is, how do you um, build that infrastructure in a way that's going to not only sustain you now, but also help uh, provide um, monetary compensation down the road uh, when it comes time to either licensing your work or entering into um, different types of arrangements that uh, allow as many people as possible to see and hear your work. And so today, particularly with, uh, with music, uh, the fact that you can release your music from Portland, Maine and have it heard around the world is extraordinary. Uh, whether it's through SoundCloud or through Spotify or Apple Music, the distribution capabilities are, are incredible. So the, you know, once you've recognized that, it really changes the paradigm from uh, what used to be really a label uh, on top and really puts the artist on top and says, okay, who do you want on your team? Well, a lawyer is just one part of that team. Um, there's a manager, there you might have a publicist, you might have a booking agent, you might have a marketing and, and PR uh, component to it. And so, um, you know, every conversation that I have with a um, an existing or a potential client uh, in the creative space is who's on your team. And, and it starts there. Uh, and from there, we can, we can really think through the strategy. I mean, I, th I think of a musician as a startup. You know, you, you really are, um, you're building a business, you're building a brand, you're building a distribution mechanism, you're taking your product and you want to get it out to as many people as possible. So 
um, you know, looking at it as a business is uh, what excites me about the work. And I, I think um, for me, particularly in today's uh, world, um, the, the uh, possibilities are, are, are endless in that respect. I imagine it would be very helpful to have a background yourself as a musician because I think there are different ways of thinking that often occur in different areas. So if you are familiar with the, a musician's way of thinking, and not all musicians are exactly the same, but there may be some patterns that you're familiar with, then maybe you can help interpret things in a way that makes more sense. I think every project starts with a vision. What are you hoping you accomplish artistically? Uh, and then from there, we can back into, well, what are the pieces you want to uh, put in place? Who, who is this going to be delivered to as your audience? Um, how do you hope uh, that this is actually going to generate income for you? But it really starts with what are you trying to do artistically? and. Uh, that definitely comes from understanding, having you know played an instrument, having sat within a, a um, an orchestra hall, and thought through um, what it is to attract an audience to something that you're doing creatively. And so, yeah, absolutely, I I, I love that part of it. It's the the fun part is the going to the concerts and seeing the end product or seeing somebody's work on the wall from as a photographer or uh, writing in print. Um, you know, that creative output is what we're working towards and I definitely identify with it. It's an interesting time to be creative because there are so many ways that we can be creative and immediately put our work out there. What I have noticed is that sometimes it's easy to believe that because it's easy to put the work out there, it's easy to be creative in the first place. I mean, I write for the magazines, and it's it's a lot of work. I mean, to put 1,600 words on a page or pages, it's, it's an incredible um, amount of time spent, amount of creative energy. I think it's similar for, you, for musicians. I mean, what comes out is maybe a 15-second on the beginning or the end of a radio show that actually took some effort but because it's so easy to have something put up on Instagram, Facebook, SoundCloud sometimes we are discounting that in a way that maybe we didn't before would you agree? Yeah, there's a um, there, there's something of a value gap between uh, the amount of time and work that goes into producing something that is artistically exciting, musically exciting, and then just um, you know something that anybody can produce in an amateur setting. And so, how do you uh, distinguish between those? And I think it really is in the process and the being deliberate in um, uh, really digging into the details of your craft. And you notice it; you can see it uh, when a musician. Uh, or a photographer or a writer has really gotten to the bottom of that particular creative question that inspired them in the first place. Um, I love reading stories. I love watching uh, how musicians do their work. Uh, you know, I there was a great article in the uh, New York Times a couple weeks ago about the life of an indie artist and how do they, how are they succeeding today? And what you realize is that there's an incredible amount of patience involved in this process that. 
you know, you might take weeks and weeks or months to put together an album. Uh, but just because you finish the album doesn't mean it's done. There's so much more um, uh, activity, mixing, mastering that goes into that finished product uh, before it's actually then released. And so um, I think there's a definite, definite you know, relationship between the amount of um, discipline and dedication that you put into really refining your, your musical craft and the depth and the quality of the output on the other end. And so, yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more that um, it, it seems so easy and, and yet there's so much behind the scenes that goes into it. Uh, there's a great book that I read uh, about a year ago called The Song Machine by John Seabrook. And it it um, really uh, unpacked, you know, all of what goes into uh, what we now know of as the pop music industry today. And you realize, you know, how many writers, how many producers, how many different people are part of the process of hearing what we now think of as, you know, top 40 music today. Not all of it's necessarily great, but you see sort of the work behind it and you realize, oh my gosh, like, this is something that is worthwhile, it's um, of merit, uh, and it has value. And if you put those three things together, um, I think that's something that um, musicians have a lot to be proud of. I'm glad you put a, a word, a phrase around it, the value gap, because I, I think that, I mean, that really defines a lot of what people struggle with. And I think about, um, I think it's probably still an issue now, but at one time it was a significant issue where music was being downloaded essentially illegally and people were treating it as if it was essentially common property that they didn't have to pay for. And I, the idea that somebody would put so much work into something like a song that, that somebody else wouldn't even pay 99 cents for or $1.29 or whatever it is now is kind of astounding when I think about it. It, it um, that was a remarkable moment in music history. At the same time that uh, Napster was uh, prevalent, the recorded music industry had something like 735 million physical sales in the U.S. and and that was the the zenith, if you will, um, of physical sales. Here we are. It's 18 years later. That was 2000. Um, in the same week that Spotify announced that they were going public, Russ Solomon, who was the founder of Tower Records, passed away. And if you put those two things together, uh, and then on the same evening, Rita Marino gets up on the Oscar awards and talks about you know, the universal um, language of music uh, and what that means, you sort of see, oh my gosh, this is an incredible time in the music industry because suddenly people are seeing the value of paying for music. And so Spotify now has 70 million paid subscribers. Uh, that's a drop in the bucket of what could be paid for. Um, but the other side of this is that uh, we as a community have, I think, a, a, a responsibility to um, acknowledge that when musicians come into our venues, uh, they should be compensated fairly for uh, for that work. And how do we value that? Well, we value that um, by looking at the fee structure and by thinking about, okay, like look at all the people who came into your venue as a result of this musical act. Um, if you're using music in your venue, are you paying for that music um, just like you would pay for any other resource? So I think I think it's this is an interesting time because, 
streaming is so prevalent, it is a, a, a capacity to compensate musicians um, more fairly, but there's still a, a gap there. It takes 252 streams to earn $1 of income. That's 252,000 streams to earn $1,000. So that's an incredible uh, amount of work that needs to go into uh, generating that kind of income, which means that there's a lot more, um, I think, benefit to looking at live performance, touring, um, merchandise, you sort of see these other mechanisms by which musicians are branding themselves and earning an income. And, and I think that's, uh, that's part of the picture. The other part of the picture is really um, musicians as ambassadors for social causes. I think this is a particularly important time for um, us to look to music and musicians as a way to translate what's happening in the world. And we see that um, every time that there's a significant world event, we look to music as a form of helping us to understand what's happening. Are there lessons from music that can be used in, say, the the world of literature, writing, journalism, or the world of photography? Because as you're talking about um, supporting musicians and their livelihoods, I'm thinking about the number of times that I go on to the New York Times website and read an article that clearly somebody put a lot of effort behind and somebody paid to have written, and I get so many views, and then you know I have to subscribe. But I don't think we've quite figured it out. Or, or I think about the number of times somebody talks to one of our main magazine photographers and is like, well, can you just give me those photos that you took? And I'm going to use them on my website. And there was payment for that. You know, right. there, was, there was effort and energy behind that. Right. But it still feels like we're in a place where not everybody recognizes that that's actually important to support. Well, there's definitely uh, steps that I think a writer and a photographer and a musician can take to uh, protect their work, which I, I see that as like the very first step. It's almost like, you know, if you build a house, you're not going like, to just let anybody in your house. Like you, you've, you've taken a lot of time to uh, design it and construct it. And, and so you want to take the steps that are necessary to protect that asset, that your, your photography, uh, photography or writing, that's an asset. Uh, we, don't, we can't see it, we can't feel it, um, but it is very much a creative asset. And so uh, the very first steps of, um, and I, I see all too often, you know, great work happening and it's never registered with the Copyright Office, which is just like the easiest first step one can take to protect their work and to ensure that uh, there will be value because it, it's that much easier when somebody you know right clicks on a photograph and downloads it and puts it up on another website or on their blog to say no like I've actually taken steps to value my work and you should too so I think that's that's a, a common uh, issue that we see a lot for creatives is building uh, copyright protection into their workflow as you know yes you've taken all that uh, all those steps to uh, um, create your work, well, just add one more. <laughs> it's a $35 filing fee with the Copyright Office, and, and that really is, it's absolutely central to protecting your work. And I can see the difference between uh, those artists who have been diligent about those steps, the degree to which they're able to monetize their work, and the degree to which uh, that ultimately becomes uh, a pension from that for them because they've taken those steps early on in their careers. Uh, intellectual property um, is a relatively young aspect of the legal field, and it seems like it's one that you really had to kind of hit the ground running 
to keep up with. What are some of the, the current issues that are being dealt with within this area? Well, I think um, one of the primary questions in, uh, in music has been uh, the issue of sampling and uh, how do I acknowledge and reference somebody else's work as a musician without copying their work. And I think that's still being sorted out. Uh, I think we've learned a lot more and musicians have learned about a lot more about how to work with each other uh, when it comes to uh, using each other's work. And you know, it, the the licensing industry has changed dramatically. It's still in flux. It's still very difficult to find the rights holder uh, when you're trying to, um, y- you know, use or engage with somebody else's work. There's not a universal platform for identifying the rights holders. So we still have a ways to go. Uh, blockchain technology is going to be a big piece of how that evolves in the future, where it will be possible for uh, a rights holder uh, to allow for a licensee to use their work and every one of those different transactions will be registered in the universal blockchain. Um, that is, we're literally at the nascent stage of that right now and it's going to be fascinating to see how that changes in years to come. Um, but I think it, IP as a whole has come a long way, you, you know, whether it be copyright protection or trademark protection, we really rely on um, source identification, which is what trademark protection is, um, and copyright to serve as the basis. I mean, every major movie production, every major commercial release of an, of a, an album relies heavily on the ability to uh, obtain copyright protection in that, in that work. And so um, I think our job is to help lower the barriers uh, to protecting your work and to make it easy. And, and then to make it possible for there to be um, as many licenses and um, thoughtful tracking of that information uh, based on who you're collaborating with, because this is a world of collaboration. And so that's where creative, particularly musicians, I think uh, are so engaged with each other's work, we need to make that process really easy. So yeah, it's, it's an exciting time. Um, I, you can kind of see the threads of this happening uh, around the world and in ways in which media and technology are really converging right now in how you know we work with artists uh, to support their work. What do you think um, what do you think the most important thing um, that you could say to an emerging musician is when it comes to any of the things that we're talking about? because I, I know that a lot of musicians, well, all musicians I've ever spoken to have put a tremendous amount of effort into learning their craft. So that's part one. And now they meet you. What's, th- what's the thing that you say, do this first? You, you talked about copywriting. What else do they have to be thinking about? Well, uh, first and foremost, I'd say uh, view yourself uh, as the CEO of your own company and you are a business, you are a startup. And, and so uh, as the CEO of, of uh, musician company uh, X, um, one of the very first questions that you ask yourself is, well, who do I want on my team? And you do that whether you're a, a, a startup business, I think the same is exactly true for a musician. Who's on your team? Uh, and being really deliberate. I think all too often questions come from outside. You know, somebody might get a 
uh, a label offer from a label they've never heard of before. And it's so exciting that this you know label has shown an interest in you. And yet, I, I think the very first question is, well, is, do I want them on my team? Is that the marketing distribution channel that I want to work with? And so I would turn the question around and really say, you know, how, how can you be deliberate about who do you want on your team? Because I think that's the most important question uh, a musician or a creative, um, a photographer or a writer can ask themselves uh, in who they collaborate with and who they work with. Uh, and then from there, um, is there a process for really thinking through, uh, you know, in the symphonic music world, we used to plan our seasons, you know, two and three years out. And so what's your plan for what your artistic output is going to be, not just two months from now or six months from now, but a year from now or two years from now, because the really exciting projects that are going to come about are going to come about because you've been working on them for some time. Then the legal piece and the business piece comes into play because then we really have something to bolster and to support because you have a strong vision for where you want to go uh, artistically. And then we can put in place the systems, which is really where I feel I play the, the biggest role uh, for helping to protect and monetize uh, an artist's work. Having talked about the um, circuitous route of your professional career, I know that it would have been impossible for you as a 22-year-old to look forward and say, this is, this is where I'm going to be. I'm going to be an attorney with Bernstein Scher specializing in this particular aspect of intellectual property. What would you say to people who are at that 22-year-old stage, who are, they like music, but they've got some other interests? I mean, how does one even know which direction to go in to get the kind of experience they need to decide what their life is going to look like? Well, I think so much uh, involves having an open heart and paying attention to the, the cues that life is throwing you in a way. I mean, you, you have certain interests that are either because of your upbringing or because of the people that you've interacted with in life. Um, and you carry those interests forward. For me, that's always been music. Um, it's led me in different directions, even though uh, the output may have been different. The central theme has been the same. Uh, and so I've held on to that as closely as I can, but I've also been open to this question of, of uh, what am I missing? What more can I learn? Who's doing good work that I'm really drawn to? Um, I've come across some amazing people along the way, um, mentors, uh, who helped me to see that something else was possible. And so being open to who those people are who resonate with you as an individual, what values do they carry? How do they um, handle themselves? How do they collaborate with others? Um, I think it's the powers in the question and less so in the answer. And so following that question along is certainly what's led me to uh, where I am today. I never would have predicted that, uh, you know, growing up on Long Island, uh, I would end up in Portland, Maine as a, a music and IP attorney. I love that answer. That's a, that's a great answer. I've been speaking with Ari Solotov, who is a lawyer with the Portland firm Bernstein Shore, who has a background in nonprofits and the music industry. 
It's really been great to have this conversation with you and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you. This has been really fun. Dr. Zach Mazzoni, DO, created Dayspring Integrative Wellness in Bath, Maine, with the belief that true health comes from building healthy relationships with your community, with your doctor, and with yourself. As a board-certified family and integrative medicine physician, Dr. Mazzoni and the whole staff at Dayspring are committed to supporting your wellness journey by providing integrative family medical care, osteopathic manipulation, herbal and lifestyle consultations, counseling, and wave therapy. Dayspring offers an innovative membership-based model of healthcare that gives you time together with Dr. Mazzoni to build a personalized wellness plan based on your health goals. Daily access for acute appointments is available, and you can even schedule a secure video conference call in the privacy of your own home. I know Dr. Zach and his family, and I believe strongly in the personalized whole-person approach to health that he provides. This is why I am encouraging you to find out more for yourself by visiting dayspringintegrativewellness.com or by calling them directly at 207-751-4775. Dayspring, wellness the way it should be. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Maine Magazine, Aristel, Portland Art Gallery, Art Collector Maine, GrownUpGirl.com, and by Dayspring Integrated Wellness. Our editorial producer is Kate Gardner. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Andrew King and Dr. Lisa Belli. For more information on our production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.